Your ears do not deceive you. You have just entered the Cryptid Creator Corner brought to you by your friends at Comic Book Yeti. So without further ado, let's get on to the interview. Hello, everyone. This is Byron O'Neill, your host for today's episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner podcast. I've got a returning guest hanging out with me today. I'm delighted to welcome Ethan Sachs back on the show. Last time around, we were talking about Marvel's Midnight Suns, which I really enjoyed. It's out now in trade paperback if you haven't picked it up. It'd be a great addition to your kind of October spooky season reading list. Ethan has a new four-issue psychological horror series coming out on Image's Syzygy imprint called A Haunted Girl, which is a very personal project. We'll dive into that in a minute, but Ethan, welcome back to the show. I'll try not to hold it against you that I recently saw you wearing Nottingham Forest gear on Twitter. Yes. Um, it's hard to hate Nottingham Forest just because they're kind of kind of mid-tier at best. So um, yep. I would reserve my hatred for the teams that are further up the further up the food chain. <laughs> well, as a, as a Liverpool fan, I'm we can hate, hate on Chelsea all day long, which there we um, go. Come, which I think they're together. below Forest on the table right now, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, Awani is a beast. I do enjoy watching him. And I think Scott Parker was formerly a, a Liverpool developmental coach. So, yeah. Anyway, enough soccer. Um, so let's get to Ahana Girl. Um, putting kind of such a, a personal story out into the world, uh, especially with with more of your your whole family, kind of is, is brave. So So thank you both for that. You know, the advanced solicits talk about you writing this with your daughter, Naomi, and centering it around um, her battle um, with mental health, especially with depression. I have a team myself who went through some very dark days with his own mental challenges after kind of a significant back injury, kind of completely tanked his personal professional sports dream. It's, it's clearly not the same thing, but at least I get it on some level, you know, what you've been going through as a parent. And I was myself. Um, in a children's psychiatric hospital as a teen for for several months. So, kind of talk to me about how all of this became a story idea you wanted to explore. Sure. Um, yeah. So basically, what happened was four and a half years ago, uh, my daughter was hospitalized. It, it was we missed a lot of warning signs. It sort of seemed abrupt at the time. Um, we found out she was suicidal and. Uh, she was a freshman in a, in a very high achieving uh, science and math school and the pressure of that on top of everything else. Um, you know, you mentioned your, your son's injury. You know, she, my, my daughter uh, was a skater and she had okay. uh, some knee issues. It was just like a lot of this stuff added up. We blew by the, the warning signs that, you know, what we know now would have been more obvious. And um we, and she ended up having to go to the hospital, the psychiatric hospital. And there I was. I mean, fortunately, I was a comic book writer. So because of the freelance schedule, I could be there just about all day, like waiting between visiting hours. But it was a sobering experience. Um, I, I wrote a large chunk of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge in the, uh, either the waiting room or the hospital cafeteria at, uh, at Bellevue. Wow. In New York. And uh, yeah, um, you know, and, and I, you know, you have this guilt that comes with, as a parent, like, how could I have not done a better job of being there for her in the, you know, um, protecting her. Uh, so I just, I felt all this, you know, I had not started therapy at myself. Um, you know, we learned a lot later, but at the time I, I had one thought and that was, I want to, because at that time it was very, it was very raw and very unsure as to 
you know, when she gets out of the hospital, then what, you know, mm-hmm. she missed two weeks of school. It was hard for her to acclimate back. She ended up um, missing the entire semester basically, and having to sort of do summer school and, and take extra courses to graduate on time. Uh, but at that time I had one idea and that was, I put him in a reporter's pad, a line, and it was like the fate of all life rests in the hands of a girl who doesn't know if she wants to live. Um, and I just, from that little idea, it was originally going to be an alien invasion story, but I just okay. wanted something where the the protagonist was a teenage uh, girl, very similar to my daughter in a lot of ways, who uh, had to save everybody else and had to find the will to to keep persevering. And the idea was that it would be a, hopefully an inspiration to her. So fast forward four and a half years, therapy, working on a lot of stuff as a family, you know, uh, medication personal growth my daughter's in college and now like last year about a little bit a little bit less than a year ago i approached her and said you know i've been working on this for so long um but it would you be interested in working with me because i you know uh you know and as it turns out it made all the difference in the world because there's an authenticity there everything from the dialogue to what it's like to be in those kind of therapy sessions and then the hospital um to have um school refusal, like just everything that, that she went through, she just basically channels it onto the page. And so, wow. yeah, here we are four and a half years later, trying to inspire other people. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, bravo to Naomi for being willing to address, you know, mental health in such an open and, and vulnerable way. I mean, that, that is, that is especially challenging, I think for anybody, but as it, for a young person, that's that's doubly so. Um, was your wife always on board? <laughs> yes, uh, you know she's been very supportive of it, and uh, she actually has a role because there's some, my my daughter is half Japanese, and my yeah. wife is obviously full Japanese. So there was in making the character, the character is half is adopted half Japanese. Uh, there's a story reason for the adoption part, but uh, so a lot of the Japanese translations for certain scenes uh, came from my wife. Okay. So she she had a role, not not as uh, time consuming a role, I guess, but uh, she's been nothing but supportive. Well, there are kind of numerous ways you could go about bringing to light, you know, mental challenges, mental struggles. You know, you were writing this sort of in the hospital and over time. So so why did comics to kind of as a medium make the most sense to to talk about this? Well, I thought a, a couple of reasons. Number one, um, it's a um, storytelling medium that I think could reach a lot of uh, an audience that was, you know, teen, 20-somethings. Uh, this depression and anxiety just keeps going up. It's it's an epide- it's at epidemic levels now, and it, it really hits disproportionately. I mean, it affects everybody. Let me just right. say that. But But there is this period in time, you know, from the tweens, teens, and 20-somethings where it can be at a dangerous level because you're not at that, you know, fully established uh, adult stage with all these supports. And, you know, depending on the support you get at home, you know, it can make a difference. So I just thought it would be a great medium to to get to a lot of the right eyeballs. Um, But also, I'm a comic book writer, so... Yeah. You know, uh, it is a medium I feel a little bit more comfortable with. And, 
you know, also we, we wanted to make a story that if you weren't going through this, you could still appreciate as well. Like you weren't losing anything. Um, and I just want to say, by the way, the final piece of the puzzle was getting the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention on board. Uh, yeah. they, uh, them and Broadcast Thought, which is a uh, basically a bunch of uh, therapists who uh, consult for, for pop culture and comic books in particular. And so like having them do the sensitivity reading in the case of the AFSP contribute a resource guide at the back, like that was essential for us because my big fear was like, you don't want to go the other way and be triggering or, mm-hmm. or s- screw it up worse, you know? Yeah. Uh, so having them kind of having adults in the room, uh, basically, you know, doing it, I think is what kind of made this, work yeah this is one of my questions you know it's kind of the extra steps to make sure that it, you were being sensitive um to any to any of those potential trigger triggers it's it's not normally one of those things i think about people having to do so much for a comic book um obviously this is a little different um you you alluded to the materials in the back. So kind of what, what does that look like? I'm just sort of curious. Sure. So like on the back uh, cover of every issue, it's going to be the same resource guide from the uh, American foundation for suicide prevention. You know, they basically, it basically sort of points to their uh, some resources on their own website. Cause uh, you know, the way I look at it is kind of like there's two stages, but if, if someone is suicidal, like they have to be um, that has to be, taken care of first before they can go on a longer, you know, repair, like mental health treatment and, and things like that. So there's this kind of very critical raw stage. And then, you know, my daughter fortunately seems to be past that. Um, and so everything else, you know, depression is, is a lifelong battle and, you know, over time you can get the tools to better navigate it. Um, and, and to, and to sort of, you know, live with it, in, in a, in a, in a healthy, healthier way. Uh, but this suicide, uh, suicidality time is it's critical to help stabilize and, you know, sort of everything else kind of flows from that. So that was, I think why we, we kind of reached out to them and, uh, you know, wanted to work with them. So what did the, the kind of your collaboration with Naomi look like? Um, it's, I don't believe you've, done too much collaboration right that like this is a, is a comics writer before so if i'm if my background is, is 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 not failing me there um you have your your onboard youth cultural consultant like you mentioned before you're getting the jargon right you know there had to be some guy in it that said bro all the time like right that's that's what yeah. kids do so yeah so i mean uh from a practical standpoint last uh winter break we broke down the story scene by scene allotted a page count you know, we went into a really deep outline for the first issue. I did almost all the, the, the sort of skeletal stuff where it's like panel descriptions, you know, how many panels per page and everything like that. I left two pages for her to do from scratch. Cause I, it was kind of like her first steps into that world. And so that mm-hmm. was the therapy scene in the first issue. And then after that, bit by bit, she did more and more of the scenes from scratch. Like once she could see sort of how a page is built out, how a panel description, you know, it's, there's a lot of minutia that goes into comic book writing because essentially it is a collaboration with the writer and the artist and the, and the art team. And so 
your instructions to the artist, you know, how much leeway they have for certain scenes, things like that. That all has to be kind of part of the the thing. So by by the end of this, like we're working on the fourth script now, we're sort of revising it. Um, you know, she's done a lot more. Uh, but even from the beginning, every lick of dialogue from the teenage characters are hers, the therapist. Um, and, you know, I've been more sort of the plot uh, and then some of the sort of supernatural elements, the okay. stuff. Yeah, that's sort of been the breakdown. So has this been a spark? Is she wanting to write comic books now or? You know, it's hard. It's, I mean, she's in the midst of uh, of college and it's pretty intense. So uh, I don't think she, I mean, I you know, she has said, oh, I have an idea for my own comic I'd like to do. And I was like, well, if you only knew how hard it is to get anything published. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I think, I don't think it's, you know, she's going to quit university and, and this for a living right away. But uh, I do think that, you know, she's always loved writing. She did some uh, youth journalism back when I was at the New York Daily News and uh, uh, for the Daily News and other places. And so um, she, uh, you know, she does love writing. So who knows? But right now she's majoring in environmental uh, studies. So, yes, that's my that was one of my majors. So, oh, nice. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you you still managed to corrupt her one way or another because yes. you do have you you do have the Climate Chronicles, which we can talk about later. But, yes. Um, well, kind of my own battles with uh, a debilitating autoimmune disease have drawn my son and I closer over the years. We've had so many of those difficult conversations about mental health that many parents, I think, likely just never get to have with their teens. So, you know, how how has that relationship with with you both kind of changed over the course of, of working on the project? I mean, I imagine it's it's certainly helped with healing. Yeah, I think you know the uh, I think. Over the four and a half years, there's been a greater change than necessarily over the project. Um, you know, we did have, before we started, some very frank conversations because, you know, what I needed her to know is like the second you come on board, anyone who didn't know about this is going to know. They'll Google your name for, you know, future employers, you know, uh, even people that you know, like she's always been upfront with her friends, but all, there are all these people you don't think about necessarily. And then they know everything and you just can't close that Pandora's box. So I think right. what was essential for me was that she understand what she's getting into. And then like, you know, we're going to have to do some press here and there. So she's doing like very little, um, and, you know, it sort of sees how it goes. And then, um, you know, we'll, we'll sort of take it from there. But I was a little worried. The thing is she kind of grasped what we were trying to do. And she was like, you know, this may help other people because there is, sometimes a stigma that's attached that's unnecessary and it makes everything worse because like people don't talk about things. So, you know, if you're feeling it, you feel like there's something wrong with you and, you know, they're pejoratives thrown around, like you're crazy and, and yeah. all these kind of things. And, and that blocks getting help. Like more people than you think are, are battling the same things. And so by opening that dialogue, you know, she gets that, that she's all on board for that. So, um, so, yeah, so I think that was my big fear. And the other thing that I found interesting is I was wondering how she would process everything, like reliving it sort of through this very fictionalized way. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so she admitted, like, there are times when it, like, she has to step away because it, it reminds her of what it felt like in the moment. So, um, you know, I guess that has been a little bit of a, of a thing. But we communicate. We, um, we go over each other's pages and like you know we have zoom calls and things like that or when she's back 
uh, we work on it together. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, that's got to be a very interesting holiday dinner conversation at times. So, um, yeah. Well, it, it kind of could have stood alone, right? Um, it didn't necessarily need to be fantastical, but it has, you know, these horror elements to the story. So I'm kind of imagining the inclusion of monsters creates an easy vehicle to kind of externalize some of these battles with our own demons by making them literal, you know, maybe yeah. that creates a safety net, of course, but, you know, for, for depression, that's kind of a difficult one for me to imagine kind of creating the platform for kind of in this way. So what ultimately made you want to kind of embrace the fantastical to illustrate depression? Well, there were two, two reasons and you, you, you definitely hit upon the first one. Um, I thought that having it as a very fantastical kind of, uh, unrealistic, um, you know, delivery system, if you will, would be that it may provide a little bit of a cushion. You know, if we, if we had this very gritty real life story, um, then I would worry that much more about it feeling triggering, you know? So like this way, I think you can recognize a lot of Cleo's plight without it being a direct in your face. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, so that was one of the reasons. And the other one was just like a practical reason as well, where, um, you know, there needs to be a reason why Cleo in, in 105 pages of story, uh, why Cleo had to be the one to solve this, you know? And so, there is this sort of mythos reason that we built it, that we bake in. Um, and I would like to think Cleo would find her way no matter what this sort of speeds up that process over the course of the story. So there's that practical element too. And then finally, like we just love R. Um, and in particular, there's a lot of sort of imagery that's very heavily inspired by certain of our favorite horror movies and particularly Japanese horror movies. Um, uh, the artist Marco Lorenzana, who's the the third part of our power trio, he uh, he loves those movies. So for him, uh, yeah, he's based in Mexico, uh, but he's uh, what a, he's a horror fan. So like um, you know, he has a wide range of influences. Um, so yeah, so like just all that together, kind of it made sense. So let's dive into that. So after reading through the advanced copy of issue one. There, there's definitely a, a vibe that reminds me of um, Zuki's The Ring. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, and your wife being Japanese, so you're kind of anchoring it in yet another layer of personal expression, you know, certainly not shying away from that. Um, so is it always part of the plan to to make the your main character, Cleo, a Japanese-American teen to kind of integrate these, these two cultural worlds or? Yeah, I mean, I originally, um, Clea was very much someone that Naomi could recognize without it being like a direct representation. Um, you know, they're both half Japanese. They both had a, you know, like a knee injury <laughs> related to sports. They both struggled to return to school. They were both hospitalized. Uh, both had trouble articulating it. Um, uh, I think Naomi was very inspired by her own therapist, who is a similar to Marcy, like a very kind of funny and sweet, you know, person and which just helped her a lot. Um, so there are a lot of these, you know, some of what Gus says was the adopted uh, father, um, you know, mirrors some things that I said when I wasn't really, uh, 
you know, as an example where you're like, Hey, you missed three days of school already. Like, you know, colleges are going to, you know, like the wrong thing to say is just to add pressure and like, but yeah. you're, you're feeling the pressure yourself. And so there was, there were all these things from our experiences that were baked in, uh, you know, obviously changed a bit, uh, for the purpose of the story, uh, but recognizable to us. Yeah. I mean, my wife is a, is a VA psychologist. Uh, her focus is more on, on sleep and PTSD. You know, I, I mentioned to her about doing this interview yesterday at lunch and her response to the whole thing was just kind of like, wow. I think the one word was vulnerability, but you know, one of the things that you've dug into here, um, is, is you're actually really getting into at least mentioning, um, which I haven't seen that much before. You talked about DBT, um, or dialectical behavioral therapy in the book, you know, it grounds it in a way that I haven't seen many other projects that are tackling mental health and comics do with, you know, like real life examples. Um, so there's, there's a balance between wanting to educate and wanting to entertain. So how did you kind of go about making sure to, to get that balance right? And yeah, correctly? it was a tough balance. Um, you know, and we were often thinking about like, okay, if somebody who's not experiencing this, who does not know what DBT is, uh, DBT for, uh, for those out there who have never heard the term before dialectical behavioral therapy is the short, shortest version I'll tell you is what it did for our family. It's just, it's, it's a measure, it's, it's a method of therapy where essentially you are dealing with emotional regulation and sort of in these moments, you're sort of changing the way you think. So like the, you know, basically you can't control how you feel like emotions are just what they are. You can, um, control how you react to them. So like, you know, for example, Cleo, when something in an upcoming issue happens, she has this moment where she's literally sitting down and like taking deep breaths and like, you know, paying attention to the grass and her fingers and things like that to sort of calm herself down so she can function in this moment. Um, so like, that kind of thing um, is, uh, you know, that's like a little detail where I don't know that it affected the major part of the story, but it felt to us like this is something I might use in that situation to just sort of calm myself down. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, it was very much in service to the story rather than, you know, it feeling tangential and like, hey, we're going to take a break from this and, and go here. But there was one thing that was very important to us. We have a therapy session in every issue. And um, one of the reasons for that is, uh, well, two of the reasons, like one, we do not want, we want therapy to be praised as the single best thing you can do to help yourself. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, when you have depression and anxiety, like that is the biggest key to your sort of overcoming. And, um, uh, so we wanted to show that and also to show progress over the course of the four issues. Uh, see how Cleo is is kind of moving along despite everything going around her. Uh, yeah, it'll make sense as you read it, but but yeah, that was important to us. So talking about Cleo as kind of as a character, so Japanese films take a different approach to conveying horror than their Western counterparts. You know, there's a greater focus on atmosphere and tension. You know, I really enjoyed kind of in the first issue that ratcheting up tension. Um, isolation was a theme that, that stood out to me, you know, as Cleo tries to kind of reassimilate to a normal life with all its routines, you know, kind of, but struggles to find that solid footing. So what was essential, you know, to kind of infuse into her as a character, you know, writing that line between real life experience and 
the storytelling you want? Uh, well, there were a couple things. Like number one, we we wanted her to be competent, right? Like so that as this thing is happening and as she's starting to realize it, you know, she isn't just the damsel in distress, like in some horror movies type thing. Like I we wanted her to sort of have agency and and sort of be responsible for the the way everything unfolds. Um, so I think that was key with her though. Obviously she's not as communicative early on. So we had to kind of work around that, you know, um, we determined we didn't want to do like thought captions or anything like that. We wanted you to sort of visually see what's going, what she's experiencing. Um, so, uh, you know, that sort of, that kind of restricted us a little bit, but yeah. I, you're right. Like for horror, I wanted it to feel like a little bit of a slow building creep. You know, we didn't, this is not torture porn or right. you know, like hostile or something like that. Like it is very much a, you know, driven in this sort of building scare kind of thing. And so uh, that's always been my favorite kind of horror movie anyway, you know, yeah. whether it's the exorcist or, uh, you know, any number of, of movies that have that kind of, you, you know, something is wrong and it's getting worse and it's getting worse. And by the time, by the time it, it actually reaches those levels, you care about the characters that are put in danger. Well, creature features are always my favorite. Um, this will be a little bit tricky to talk around, but I think it's material to kind of help pull in the potential readers here. So part of the mythology you're pulling from, and excuse me if I pronounce this wrong, you know, is surrounding the, the Jorogumo. Is that, yep. you know? Mm-hmm. So as I understand it, this is kind of a, a yokai of the, the golden orb weaver spider. You know, normally mm-hmm. they appear as a beautiful woman kind of intent on ensnaring an unsuspecting man. This wasn't that, you know? So what can you explain about its use kind of in the story without giving away a bunch of spoilers? There, there's a golden orb on the cover, man. So yes. like, um, yeah. So basically uh, what I could say without spoiling anything is we're, we're tapping into a little bit of, of Japanese mythos for the aesthetic, but it isn't, you know, you don't necessarily need to, to, be fluent in it or anything like it's it's very much in part how cleo perceives things because this is a supernatural thing so this is sort of her frame of reference that's all i'll say about it because uh okay uh, but yeah that is you know um marco's uh, spent a lot of time um uh basically doing sketches and looking at you know, other depictions and things. And we didn't want to replicate, like we didn't want it to be, oh yes, that's the, you know, the such and such from Greek mythology or whatever. Like we, we wanted it to be its own spin. Like we're not, we're not trying to tap directly into the mythos. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Was there any kind of like proximal family association? I didn't, I didn't know if your wife, cause I I did a little research behind it. Um, and you know, definitely did your homework. Um, no, not not from there. Just because of the, you know, once we decided on the Japanese aesthetic, it sort of led to, um, to other things. But I, I will say there are other types of ghostly things that you'll see over the course of these issues that aren't all from from that mythology. Okay. No, without spoiling anything. Okay. Okay. Well, I, I can say I can say there's a, cool, there's a cool zombie deer. Because I can say that because um, they're. Uh, Paolo Villanelli did one of the variants for issue two, and that's sort of out in the world in the solicit. So I guess I could say that. Okay, nice. I don't know what it is about zombie deer. Zombie deer are truly terrifying. Yeah, know. yeah. It's just 
you know, one of those things where she jogs past this dead deer roadkill and they don't see it in the background a few panels later walking by, you know, so uh, she's oblivious to it. But, uh, but yeah, it was just like this, this moment and Paolo, and I, when I did Paolo Villanelli uh, is, was my artist for many years on uh, bounty hunters, star Wars bounty hunters. And yeah. uh, I, I was like, I'd love you to do a variant. And he read this, the script and he's like, I want to do the zombie. <laughs> so um, yeah. Um, but there are little, there are things like that out there. Okay, it seems like a good spot to take a quick break. Hey, y'all. Jimmy recently scored me a signed, personalized copy of Hallow's Eve from Erica Schultz after our interview. You've probably had this problem, too. I got this great book. Now, how'd I display this thing? Well, I discovered this great product from Crafty Comics that lets you showcase your treasured comics, and they even have options for already slab books, too. I got their Flex Frame, which is amazing as you can customize the backing and it even has interchangeable watercolors to coordinate with your space. I opted for neutral gray to match the blue in my room. You can hang portrait or landscape and it comes with a template to make it easy to ensure that you get it exactly where you want it. To my surprise, my wife who tolerates my comic stuff was actually impressed with the overall quality and look. Win! So if you're looking for the perfect solution to showcase your own collection, visit Crafty Comics dot com online that's crafty with an i use the discount code yeti5 and get five percent off your order all right let's get back to the show well talk to me about the rest of your creative team i mean you mentioned uh marco already he's working yeah. with you again you guys uh created a one shot called intrusion together a little yes, while back like a, kind of play off a uh off a uh flip book uh by magma comics and heavy metal a few years ago uh and um, yeah, I just, uh, he was actually the artist on the very first Marvel story I ever did, uh, an eight page story in Secret Empire, uh, Brave New World number three, which was like this anthology spinoff off that. Um, and so at that time, he's like, I want to work together again with you. And I was like, let's make this happen. And then here we are all these years later. Uh, he's a fantastic artist. You know, he's a co-creator. is It's a three person uh, um, so that's why I always sort of list him for first before I talk about the other, uh, art teams, yeah. the rest of the art team, but they're all fantastic. Um, the letterer, Jaime Martinez, um, is, uh, he's just one of the best I've ever worked with. He's a good friend of Marco's. That's how he came onto the team. Okay. And, um, Andres Mosa is, um, he was my colorist on old man Hawkeye and for mo- much of old man Quill, I just think the world of him. Uh, can work with him. And because I was the one, you know, it's an image book. So I was paying the bills for like, you know, the, the rest of the creative team and the variants and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I he was like the first person I approached. Um, but yeah, they're, it's a fantastic team. Everyone's doing more than, you know, it's not just a work for hire for them and they get the, the mission. And uh, so they're very, um, you know, they're just contributing such great work. Yeah, I always I always lock on the color work in any any book. It's it's sort of my thing. So there, there was a moment, and I kind of want to talk to you about how how you wanted to use the the color in the book. You know, kind of for for the atmosphere and mood. Because Andreas created this scene, it's a standout moment where Cleo is kind of sitting opposite her dad with a door, you know, separating them, and he's kind of bathed in light. She's sitting in the dark. It creates yeah. such a powerful mood, you know, and those contrasts. Um, throughout the first issue felt so pivotal 
to to the telling of the story. So, I mean, how much was that? How much was that you being like, okay, this is kind of what I want to do, and or did well, did that was that was in the script. Um, okay, but uh, he nailed it. You know, he got it. He nailed it. Uh, that might be my favorite panel in the entire. Certainly in the first issue, there, there are a couple in the fourth issue that I'm just like really excited about. Um, uh, but yeah, that was the tone we wanted to show is like, they're, they're just, they're right near each other, but they're, they're completely different headspaces. And, you know, and Gus, as much as his heart's in the right place, doesn't fully understand, you know? Um, and so we wanted to depict that visually, which again, because I mean, she's she's talking more than she normally does in that moment, but it was, um, you know, uh, you know, and, and talking about the visuals, by the way, I, I even though he's not technically part of the art team, I just need to give a shout out to Joe Casada, who is yeah. uh, one of my closest friends and uh, has been a supporter not only of this project, but also of, um, you know, when when one of the big turnaround things for my daughter was a few years ago. She had the chance to go to Yellowstone um, uh, on this trip. And Joe happened to be like, and his family happened to be not that far away. So I was, I, I stayed with them and they like, basically were just there from like, I was there for 11 days, Wow, know, basically <laughs> ruining their summer vacation or whatever. But, um, but like, it was never, it was never an issue. Like they were just like, if, if I needed, you know, he would, he's the kind of friend that would do anything. And, uh, so this, this is, that cover was a gift to support the project. So like, I don't think I could afford joke otherwise, but yeah, I mean, that was, you know, and, and we've just had some amazing, uh, cover artists, uh, Osseo and, uh, future ones, Jessica Fong, like they're just some amazing artists coming. Um, yeah, Joe's cover for that first issue is pretty standout. It definitely yeah. sucks, sucks you in. Sure. Yeah, which is for each of the of the issues, I tried to get like one kind of pure horror, one slightly kind of that something that has the sort of teenage angst and horror component, and one that's a little like the first one is a manga style uh, kind of cover. So I just wanted to, you know, kind of get a a sense of the variety of of things that went into this book. Well, let's let's lighten the mood a little bit here. Uh, I feel. Like- so you've got uh, Star Wars Bounty Hunters, which you've been working on quite some time. Like the sixth collected volume is is what's this coming out. out. Yeah. yeah, yeah, coming out this month. So yeah, so yeah, it's been four years. You know, when you consider all the stoppages uh, of uh, you know for the pandemic and such, we're approaching four years, which is you know even though I think we're like in the high thirties at this point. It, uh, yeah, it's been. I never thought I would have an ongoing last this long. So. Uh, I I feel blessed, and I just love the characters. I think there's something fun about the fact that I think we've had one lightsaber in uh, appear in all in the entire run. I think wow. was what wielded by the uh, by the Knights of Ren. Um, yeah, so I think that was it. Uh, that's such a big. I mean, feather in your cap. Like, I, I don't talk to many people who have like almost a forty issue run of anything. Yeah. That is, that's crazy. Yeah, and congratulations. I congratulations. Thank you, thank you. I, I and I just love the characters. Like they, they're just trying to make it in this world. They don't really care if the empire or the rebellion wins. You know, they're just trying to eke out this existence. Um, you know, in this sort of seedy alleyways of the 
of that world. And I just, uh, you know, I kind of played it a little bit for the PTSD element. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it did a uh, short thing is it's just been a, a heck of a run. And for most of it, I had the same artist Paolo who, uh, and, and I've been blessed with other great artists on this. Uh, but the, the sort of chemistry that he and I had working together was just absolutely fantastic. So we talked last time we talked, um, you were working, you had the climate crisis chronicles coming out and there, there's a personal note I want to share, right? So we just moved from Florida after the ordeal of, you know, a mandatory hurricane evacuation last year. And boy, did I have a satisfied smile when we got the text alert at the beginning of this month, evacuate from the old house again, now that we live in North Carolina. Um, so after having chatted about it last time, I, I, I read through it. I think it's fantastic. So the the crime climate crisis chronicles is out in paperback from AWA is is that that's correct right that is correct that's all yeah. correct yeah 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 so give me a quick pitch here for those that are not quite as familiar with it yet sure um this is a sort of uh, spiritual sequel to a book i did a few years earlier uh, called covid chronicles which was written in the first few months of the beginning of the of the pandemic and essentially it was using my journalism background and my comics um sort of to, to interview people who were on the front lines at the time so emergency room nurse uh you know people like that um and we told 10 stories they ran first on nbc news uh digital uh on the website and then they were collected into a trade and we won a new york press club award and i think that interested you know, basically Axel Alonso at AWA came back and said, like, what would you like to do something similar? We'd like to do something similar. And I said, I, my dream project would be to do this around climate change because climate change is something where even though, you know, we are almost everyone on the, in the world is experiencing the effects of it. Uh, it is something that's hard to sort of show on a human scale, maybe, you know, comparative to some, some other potential subject matter. Um, so basically I looked for like the first chapter was this California firefighter who, you know, fights wildfires and he sees them getting bigger and more destructive and starting earlier and, and all these kind of things. So he, over his 30 plus years in experiencing this can see, can sort of see what it's like. And he's taking you into this world where, you know, how they fight these fires. Um, I had the mayor of an African uh, city that is very much uh, dealing with extreme heat and drought and things like that. But she's actually like implementing policies like a million tree planting a million trees and uh, putting tarps over street markets and things like that. She's, she's working on solutions. Uh, so I thought that was kind of, and then I finished with a French astronaut who was in the international space station and basically over the course of, of his time there was taking pictures of these hurricanes and all these kind of, and he could see he became a climate change activist. So like basically, um, you know, uh, finding 10 stories that basically show people dealing with this now and, and, you know, the, the effects and, and all those kind of uh, things. It also ran on NBC first and was collected. And as an, as a, a strange little way to, uh, to sort of tie this up is, um, my high school, the one I graduated from, ordered 70 copies uh, to use as a textbook in their writing to make change course. So like I have to go in uh, late October and talk to the students there. But it's kind of weird that, uh, yeah, this is a textbook uh, in, in my that's awesome. high school. Yeah, that's kind of, kind of cool. 
yeah. the the power of comics, you're using it all kinds of different ways to to help educate. So yeah, I mean, you know, ideally there we could figure out the economics better so that there would be maybe more of a market for uh, that kind of you know nonfiction. You know, but obviously, you know, you look at at ducks, you look at uh, you know Joe Sacco, like there are people succeeding um, in using comics you know, the medium to, to tell, to do powerful journalism. And I think one of the reasons is it's basically all the benefit of having a video camera, like in being able to capture the visual, but you can kind of do it retroactively. So like someone can experience this, you report it out, they tell you what you're experiencing and you can recreate it using reference photos and various things. And so like you can create the emotion of that or recreate it. Um, you know, and, and so that's the power of this medium. So in the medium, what else you got going on? Um, what else can I talk about? I, you know, I have a, uh, well, I, I, I just did my, uh, the first of my, uh, the two DC short stories, uh, that I've done is coming out at the end of October. Uh, it's a, a story, a, an ocean master story in Aquaman and the lost kingdom special. Um, I've always been both a Marvel and DC fan. So the chance to sort of now put my, you know, big toe in that pool is just, uh, just a blessing. And, um, you know, I'm talking to them about other things. So, uh, I have another Marvel project, possibly two that I can't talk about. I, I do have a graphic novel, which I believe has been announced, um, which I'm working with, uh, Fico Osseo. Uh, it's a, uh, it's a, um, uh, adaptation i guess of a of a board game called blood rage by uh, okay. yeah so it's like this viking supernatural board game nice the rock and yeah we did a graphic novel which uh i just think it came out fantastically mainly because of fico um or fico sorry um yeah so uh other stuff i don't think i can talk about yet well you're staying busy that's for sure well, I'm in the habit of wrapping up every interview now, talking about mental health. Um, this is usually something specific to comics, you know, talking about keeping your sanity and balance. Um, but let's change it up a bit, you know, kind of beyond the, the messaging of a haunted girl. As a father, are there any words of advice you'd like to share for a parent out there listening in who, who might have a child that's struggling with depression or, or even other mental illnesses? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the first thing you have to do as a parent, the single biggest thing you have to do is listen to your child. And um, if you notice that they're struggling, create this environment for them where they can tell you anything, even if it's uncomfortable for you to hear, and that you don't sort of punish or not angry at them for what they're saying, um, you know, that you not demonize therapy you know, that you work with the social worker at your school, the guidance counselor, whoever, and start to, to sort of try to get those supports in place because, you know, these kids are going through a lot beyond the, the stuff that we went through as teenagers. Um, and I do think that in general, people are more resilient than we give them credit for. They just need the help to, to sort of, to go on that journey. Um, you know, and, and, and things that we take for granted, like sometimes I'll, I used to say things like, it's not a big deal, it'll be okay, or things like that. And that that's not how they feel. And then they feel like you're not listening to them, you're not, and then they, they don't go to you with the problem. So it's like, yes, 
you think you're protecting them and you know trying to minimize this thing, but that's not that's not really the same as listening to them or or you know it is a big deal for them, and yeah. so uh, you have to meet them where they're coming from, and you know sometimes it's hard and like maybe you know your kid doesn't need you adding that extra pressure about colleges or whatever like they need more of of a support and and help um and you know i like i said the the therapy is is the key component i think um that and just this loving environment as a family that you can can kind of kind of do um but you know if you, if you feel like your kid is struggling you know even if they haven't told you your instincts are probably correct and so you know gently approach them and say hey, if you if there's something you want to talk about you know i'm here i we love you unconditionally and we're not, you know, you want them to feel comfortable coming to you rather than they're, you know, saying something that's going to disappoint you or, or something like that. Um, so that, yeah, that's my biggest piece of advice. Well, I'll again, reiterate, thank you and Naomi for being brave enough to put something this personal out into the world. You know, kind of the only way we get to the point as a society of making sure everyone feels comfortable addressing their mental health is to normalize talking about it. So I really enjoy getting a chance to to have you on to hear more about Hana Girl and, and hope there's a point of closure or at least release in here yeah. somewhere for your family once this is all out in the world, you know. And, and most importantly, that it finds its way into someone's hands who needs it at that moment. That's our hope. That's our hope right there. I think, uh, you know, I, I think closure will always be incomplete you know what i mean like they'll always be uh but that being said i i think um you know we're finding some catharsis in it um and uh, yeah our our hope is that we can reach at least some people who may benefit from realizing that what they're experiencing is something we experienced and other people experience and just people don't talk about it but it happened so um yeah we're hoping that's what comes out of it so issue one hits mid-October, is that right? October 11th, uh, just in time for New York Comic Con. Uh, and I'm I'm going to be hitting the road um, for some signings, California, uh, Orlando, Green, Greensboro, North Carolina. Oh, dude, where are you going to be in Greensboro? Are you going to be uh, at Acme? Acme Comics, October 28th. I will announce I will be there. Schedule. Excellent. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, that's a Sunday. I'm okay. in Pittsburgh on the Saturday, so I'm just like boarding a flight going to wow. Greensboro. Yeah. It's, uh, going to Georgia to Augusta going to yeah, Annapolis to third eye. So, um, doing all I can to spread the message. Wow. You're bouncing around a lot. Yeah. We, we live in Winston Salem, so I'm like half an hour away. Oh, excellent. So I will yeah. see you October 28th. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, make sure to get your pre-orders in folks. Um, I have a feeling that this is going to be a great series. I really enjoyed the first issue. You know, with that Joe Casada cover is is sure to have have these issues flying off shelves. Pretty dope cover, so so make sure to get it in. Um, Ethan, thanks so much for for coming on again and hanging out with me. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. Well, this is Byron O'Neill signing off. Um, oh, I need to shout out to Jimmy's brother Bobby, who I am told is our biggest fan. So thanks, Bobby, for listening. On behalf thanks, of Bobby. all of us, <laughs> on behalf of all of us at Comic Book Eddie, thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. This is Byron O'Neill, one of your hosts of the Cryptid Creator Corner, brought to you by Comic Book Yeti. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. 
It lets us know how we are doing, and more importantly, how we can improve. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner, maybe you would enjoy our sister podcast, Into the Comics Cave. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now